very warm welcome to you from Equa Marketing. This presentation is brought to you by Equa.com, a leader in digital marketing. Hello everyone, welcome to another amazing episode of Growing Dentist Podcast Show. Today I'm super excited to have Amy with me. Amy is the founder of D4 Metrics. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Amy, just to kind of get started and introduce you to our audience, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what inspired you to help dentists and how you got into this? Absolutely. I have been in dentistry for over 25 years and I got involved actually because of my sister who is a dentist um, back in Kentucky. And she was going to dental school when I was going to pre-law and I was bored to death on the law library and started doing some hands-on things with her and found that I really liked the field of dentistry. So I shifted my background and got a business background instead of the law and then went into getting my dental assistance license. And from there, moved my way up into all the roles within the practice. I've not been a hygienist or a doctor, but I've pretty much taken on every role in the business of dentistry, as well as in the clinical aspect in the back office. And I've taken that role and brought it to a different level because I love a challenge and I always wanted to learn and do more. And I took it into the realm of consulting because every practice was a different challenge. And what I saw happen with my sister in her dental practice, had I known now what I, had I known then what I know now, I would have guided her a little bit differently in her purchase years ago. And I have taken that passion and that why, if you would call it, into what I do now with the D4 metrics. And I help buyers, business owners understand the health of their practice and what they could do with that information that's going to be able to give them a future based on what their goals are and what their vision is. So that's how I've taken my background in dentistry of business and then also clinical to help clients as they plan their journey of where they want to be in their career. That's amazing. Uh, I love the fact that you you studied law and I guess lawyers are good researchers, right? They are really good at figuring (laughs) out, you know, stuff by looking at the past. Yes. And uh, I mean, they look at case, uh, you know, past cases and past precedents and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So they're very much data-driven people. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I was always data-focused and people-focused, but sitting in the law library just didn't do it for me. So I I needed more interaction. And the dentistry side with working with my sister was really fantastic. Yes, I guess you didn't want to kind of take the data and, you know, tell people all the things they can't do. You wanted to help them do something positive with the data and, you know, hopefully grow from that. Exactly. Right. That's awesome. Um, so you worked um, hands-on in, in a dental practice and you helped, uh, you worked and you learned by mistakes. And and um, tell me how you kind of started really noticing the power of metrics, the power of data. And I know your business is called d4metrics.com. Like, yes. what, how did that happen? Just talk to me about the moments or, or, or the phases you went through in getting to that realization. 
Absolutely. We have to. So what, what I've found over the years in my previous experience, I worked for a national firm for many years that they um, went corporate and then they are no longer around now. But when I worked with them, we would capture data packets from clients that would come to seminars. And when we studied those data packets, I would be able to start seeing trends in data and numbers and information. And I really enjoyed digging into that information to understand how could I create a strategy path for that client for improvement or growth or change within their business. So looking at lots of data packets, I started to really understand numbers and information. And I did consulting in the field for many, many years with a lot of travel in offices. I had a two-day suitcase and a four-day suitcase. So I was on the road quite a bit and I found it rewarding. However, I found the data and the information even more rewarding for me when I could begin to help someone see the understanding of what the numbers explained when their story was brought to life. So for many years, I looked at those data packets. And then this company that I worked for many years ago created a, a product that was like a dashboard. And I was pulled out of the field to help with the development of that dashboard. And that just immersed me into numbers and data and information that much more. So I found that that was really where I enjoyed living in my day-to-day -day of helping practices and businesses understand how to change those numbers or how to modify those numbers or how to course correct those numbers to get the results that they would like to see. So I really moved into the metrics in the last four years and I refined my business model two years ago. I used to be called Success Essentials, so you'll find me on the internet as Success Essentials in many places, but I refined my business model to D4 metrics about two years ago for the main purpose of I felt that there was a need to compartmentalize data for people so that they could begin to understand it more refined. And it wasn't so overwhelming to just say, here's a bunch of information. Now, here's what you do with it. So I broke down my business model into the four quadrants, which was from my previous experience. And those four quadrants include the facility the team, the patient base, and the schedule. So when I go in to look at a practice, whether it be from a coaching perspective for an analysis to determine what needs they have, or if I look at it from a purchasing slash acquisition approach, I'm going in to first of all, understand the facility. I look at the location, where is it actually located? How easily accessible it is to get into that location? Is there enough parking? One of the, the factors with my sister in the past was she was in a seven story building on the fourth floor and no one knew she was there. And the challenge that we had was business growth and driving the business. And in order to do that, we had to take on every insurance plan under the sun, which then reduced our reimbursements just to get volume into the door so that we could make money to market and get our name out there. So it became a challenge for her and that practice because of visibility. So one of the things that's really important in looking at the facility or the location is, are you visible to people or are you in a busy place where there's traffic flow so you can get business 
into your door that doesn't all have to be expense related marketing. It can be location marketing. It can be word of mouth marketing. So facility encompasses many different things. When I get physically into the facility, I now look at how it's designed, how it's laid out, how many operatories do I have, how many are defined for clinical versus hygiene and you know, what does the makeup of that facility look like? Do I have enough workstations for my employees based on the kind of flow that I want to have? And then do I have the technology that I need within my facility? So there's a lot of subcategories within my four broad categories that we begin to break down and look at to say, how does this look in your practice or the practice that you're interested in being a part of, whether it's an associate or whether it's a purchase opportunity? So first being the facility, then we move into, I know I've got a place to work. I have everything that I need to work. Can, now, can, I, can, I, can I pause you for a second? I just want to ask you some. Go right ahead. Yeah, clarifying question. So, I mean, the thing that really jumped out at me is um, you work or spend a lot of your time helping people make million dollar decisions on who to buy, how much to pay and so forth. Yes. So, the flip side of this is if you work with a practice, you can f- help them focus on how to make the net worth of their practice grow. In other words, we work so hard, but at the end of the day, when we go to sell, we have to sell that asset, which is our practice. So you can now look at it from a buyer's point of view and say, hey, here is what the buyers are looking for. Yes. This is what they are willing to pay for. I mean, yes, you can have all these other things, but these three things will make the biggest difference or these five things will make the biggest difference in terms of your net worth. You are absolutely correct. And what sometimes happens, I'm about 95% on the buyer's side when it comes to the acquisitions, because I feel that there's really no one out there helping buyers understand what they're buying. And what I try to do is build the relationship with the buyer to first find out what their lifestyle is. You know, where are they from a debt service standpoint? Where are they from a lifestyle need? Do they have families? Do they, you know, are they independent? You know, do they have children that they need to, you know, put through school or, you know, what is their desire for their standard of living and what is their debt service and what would they be taking on from a debt service standpoint if they purchase this practice? So I first understand who they are as a person by getting to know them and building that trusted advisor relationship that we all want. So that they feel comfortable enough to know that I'm not just here to take their money. I'm here to help them through this process. And they're making huge decisions. They're making, like you said, million dollar plus investments. And I want them to be able to be confident in the fact that they have done their homework in making that decision when they go and purchase that practice or they do a transition and they buy into a practice and so forth. So with that what what i really try to help that buyer or that you know individual understand is what are the key components that as you said what does a seller need to have prepared if they want to bring somebody on to buy and then the broker puts together the package and the information about that business but on the buyer side what am i looking for to help my buyer understand and you know some of the things that i look at is how nice the facility is laid out, how clean it is, how organized it is. So I'm walking in through this facility and with if I'm walking through with a buyer, what I'm looking for is to say, 
do they have this place organized? And this is a well-oiled machine to where we could just come in and basically pull one doctor out, put another one in, keep the team, keep the flow, keep the business model as it is for now, because you don't want to make a lot of changes in that first to six to nine months. You got to be really careful because the patient base starts to see these things and they get scared. Right. So that's what I really try to help a buyer understand is this whole process of purchase and acquisitions or transitions has to be planned out appropriately. And when you plan that out by looking at these four areas and the key components in those areas, you will have a much better strategy and, and not necessarily a business plan, but you will have a strategy plan in place to get where you want to go. Right. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. So um, you, you first help the buyer understand what their vision is. Like, for example, I have uh, one doctor who works 24 hours and does really well, you know, takes home 750K a year. Yes. And then I have another doctor who works double that amount of time and has a bigger, you know, practice on, 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 on revenue, but takes home one third of what this other doctor takes home. So really understanding what are you trying to do? What's your goal? And then figuring out what is it going to help you get there? And I guess what you're saying is you help buyers think that through and make the right decision for themselves. Yes. And of course, because the devil is in the details and the numbers and, and, and dentists, you know, a lot of them are focused on being the best in the world at the clinical side of things. So you really provide that clarity for them. That, Absolutely that understanding for them. Okay, you, you need to think about this, you need to think about this, and this is why this is a good practice and that may not be and, you know, and so forth. That's correct. Yeah, so now coming back to, you know, so it's almost like we're starting with the end in mind. We're starting from the buyer's point of view, what they're looking for and why that makes sense for them. That is now, absolutely what I do is I start with the end in mind and I'm glad that you made that statement because we can throw a bunch of stuff together, but if we don't know what our desired endpoint is, then all of it is for naught. So for example, I, um, a couple of years ago, I worked with a young gentleman and we looked at a facility and I said, so what is your vision? He's like, well, I have a friend that's going to dental school right now. And at some point we'd like to practice together. So we go and look at this place. And I said, this facility is not conducive to what you want to do as your long-term goal. You could start here. But if it's five years from now, you don't want to have to move five years from now and you cannot expand in this location. You can't bust out walls. There's nowhere to go. So if that's your long term vision, then we might want to look at another option for you. Right, right. Because at the end of the day, what's important is what is your end and then can this help you get there? Exactly. Makes sense. Now, coming back to the four areas, right, where you can make the most different. One is facility. The other one is team. The other one is patient base. And, and last, then the fourth one is schedule. Of course, I, I think a lot of the dentists listening, I think the number one thing they probably are thinking of is patient base. You know, how do I get more patients? How yes. do I keep my patients? How do I get them to spend more money with me? Then yes. probably they're thinking of their team or schedule, depending on where the challenges are, you know. And then, of course, facility also is very, very important. But um, if they're starting a brand new practice, facility is something they can do something about. But if they have an existing practice, it, they could tweak it, but they may not be able to totally change it, right, without incurring a lot of money. So do you mind if I start on patient base? And let's start 
at the 10,000 foot level? What are the three important metrics? You know, the most important metrics in your mind for, for the patient pace, uh, patient base bucket of mm-hmm. growing your business. And then let's kind of go a little bit deeper and deeper and see, you know, how to think about these metrics and how they can improve them. That's my soapbox. I can spend all day there. (laughs) So patient bases, really, I have been asked to actually write an article about patient base because I'm so passionate about it. Everyone has their own definition of what is an active patient. I will help you understand what my definition is, and I will explain the reason behind that. My definition of an active patient, and I'm talking general practice at this point, is someone who has a hygiene due date 18 months back, which means they were physically bottom in chair in my business two years ago, and they at least have a six-month recare cycle due date from that date that they were physically in the practice two years ago. So that would be 18 months back, and then to one year into the future, just in case I've got someone that's away at school, away on a mission, away in the military, whatever. So with that being said, I look at how many active patients have due dates and hygiene in that time frame. So that's the first number that I go and look for in a business, because when I know that number, and then I can look at what the retention is of those patients. And what I mean by retention is how many of those patients are in the schedule somewhere into the future. And what are they scheduled for at this point in time? I don't care if it's profi or hygiene. I just want to know if they're actually in the schedule. So what I look at is how many is that number? When I know what that number is, then I can begin to plan how many hygiene days I need to service one, that. One second. Baby. Let's just uh, slow down for a second. So. I run a practice and I think I have around 100 patients. I have no idea. So how do I figure out how many active patients? And then you talked about the future appointments. So can you kind of give me some examples? Like just, you know, dumb it down for me if I may. Sure, sure. Okay, so when I get data on a practice, I'll have people say, oh, I have 1,800 patients. Okay, so maybe that's the number that your software says you have is 1,800 patients. Right. Well, how many of those patients are actually participating in hygiene? And what I mean by participating is they've had a hygiene due date 18 months back or to one year into the future. So if I took that 1,800 patients and I said, okay, I have two recare cycles in my business. I have 24 weeks and 24 weeks. So out of the 52 weeks, we work about 48, let's just say safely. Is that a fair enough assessment? Yeah. Okay. So if I work 48 weeks out of my business year, then I have 24 weeks in my first six-month recare cycle, and then I have 24 weeks in my second six-month recare cycle. If I'm going to take that 1,800 patients, and I want to say that our 1,800 patients are all active in my business, and they're all in hygiene, And I say, I have to get all 1,800 patients in for a minimum of one one hour appointment in that six month cycle of that 24 weeks. I take 1,800 and I divide that by 24. And it says 
if I have 100% retention of those patients, all 1,800, then I would need 75 hours a week of hygiene to service all of those patients for one one-hour appointment in just that six-month time frame. And so then me, you say, well, second, maybe let, I only have four. Go ahead. Let me do the math. So 1,800 people. So I have to see if, uh, how many. So if, assuming I have 100% retention, that means I'm going to see all 1,800 within the next six months. That means yeah. uh, so six months. So 1,800 divided by six is um, 300 a month. And then that means 75 a week. That means I have to see 75 people every single week if I have 100% retention. Correct. Perfect. At an hour appointment. One hour appointment. Okay, got it. So now I'm not even, I haven't even considered how many patients that you have in perio maintenance that may come twice in one recare cycle and once in the other, depending on their interval frequency of three or four months. Right. I haven't even taken into consideration the new patient growth. And do they get an hour? Do they get an hour and a half in the hygiene chair or whatever? I haven't even taken into consideration the number of patients that get scaling and root planing. So I'm saying just with that 1,800 patients that you have for a minimum of one one one-hour appointment, that's a simple calculation for us to begin to say, hey, what's the health of our practice? When you tell me you have 1,800 patients, but you only have four days of hygiene, well, what's four days of hygiene? Eight and four is 32 if I'm doing eight-hour hygiene days. So there's a big gap of 32 and 75. There's a big spread of a difference in hours. So you may not actually have 1,800 active patients. Right. That may just be the number of patients that your dental software says you have because you put the name in the system and they're somebody in that database. So the reason I focus it on hygiene due date is because I can plan more accordingly the number of hours that I need to service those patients based on the number that I have versus what I need. And then we can begin to plan if I see this many patients at this fee schedule, at this reimbursement rate, then what's my potential revenue opportunity with that patient at the minimum? So, so let, me, let me get this straight. So. Um, so somebody says they have 1,800 patients, but you do the math, that means for them to really have 1,800 patients, they need minimum 75 hours. That's without accounting for, you know, those people who have gum disease or brand new patients. So, and the reality is they only have 32 hours. So you immediately say there's an opportunity for you to literally, uh, either your numbers are wrong, which, which means you really don't have 1,800. That's correct. Or, or you do, but maybe your systems are not, perfect so you're not getting all of them or most of them to come in so let's figure out how do we make that happen and then you start zooming into that and say okay here are three action steps you can take to a get the numbers really tightened up so it's not 1800 maybe it's 1400 right maybe instead of it being 12, 32 hours maybe here are steps we can take to get it to 60 hours so that still doubles your hygiene business correct so right. that's an area of opportunity for me and I will tell you that when I go into most practices, whether it be from a, an analysis standpoint for consulting or it is to do a due diligence, I on average see retention in about the 60% range. 60%. I, I would ideally like to see it more in the 80 to 85% range. So when I initially look at that, I see areas of opportunity 
for us to implement a more strategic system to work on my hygiene. Now, there are a lot of programs out there. I know of many of them, and some of them do more than others as far as the overlay that comes to your dental software and they send out recall reminders and so forth. Lots of different programs. I'm not pitching one over the other. What I caution my clients on, especially if it's a brand new purchase, is within that first six months, we have to be very, very careful that we don't do too much electronic contact depending on the demographics of that patient base. So now that I've sorted out this 1800, I want to know what's the age demographic of my patient base. Is it younger millennials? Is it middle-aged baby boomers? Or is it older, senior, living, snowbird type of patient base? So I'm going to next, after I know how many are there, and then I know what my retention is, I'm going to look at what the age breakout is of the patient base so that I can begin to plan, again, strategize on how I would go about improving my retention from that 60% to the 85% or higher. So for example, when I look at a practice here in Arizona, we have snowbirds, we have seasonal clients. And within the dental software, I teach my team members to identify those seasonal patients so that when we're planning future schedules for the summertime, when those seasonal people are gone, we know how many people we truly need to get in the schedule versus the other times of the year when those people are here and we might need to enhance and add hours to our hygiene schedule because our flow is heavier. So knowing the understanding of demographics of the patient base is going to be so key in the planning side of building schedules, which takes us into fourth quadrant of schedules. But I got to know how many patients I need to service before I can build a schedule around it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let me, let me kind of, you know, rephrase what I learned from you today. Um, so yes, you figured out that they currently have 1800 patients. They have 60% active patients, meaning the patients who are seeing the, the doctor or the doctor's office every six months. Now you want to take it to 85%. Now you start, instead of using the same approach to every patient, like let me text everybody or let me send an email to everybody, you start looking at the demographics. Hey, this group of people love a phone call from us. Right. Right. So we have a problem with this group. So let's create a plan. Okay, we have 200 people who are baby boomers and they love that personal touch. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out how do we call them and, and book those appointments. Yes. Right. And then, like you said, if some of them are snowbirds, then let's not call them when they're, you know, back home, but let's call them when they're back here. Right. So, uh, or let's book those appointments for those dates. Right. So you're really saying um, the key to success is, 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 is not the high level number. Yes, that's important, but really going to the next level and figuring out for us to go from 60% uh, active patients to 85, what are the things we need to do? And, and really, doing that at the at the micro level right so yes. and, and then coming up with the strategies and i assume there'll be people responsible for those strategies and then making sure it happens and then making sure it's being you know somebody's monitoring it am i making sense you're that thinking absolutely what i'm saying that's why i say i could talk all day just on patient data right and, and really 
clarifying and understanding and categorizing your patient data within your dental software is going to be so key in how you plan what your scheduling needs are and what your communication needs are with the patient base. And you, you bring up an excellent point. I talk to doctors, you know, we have 200 plus doctors I talk to very frequently and, uh, you know, thousands of other doctors uh, who listen to our podcast and so forth. Uh, one of the things I notice is that a lot of times our doctors have no idea what their numbers are. Mm-hmm. You know, they have no clue. And a lot of times, like you are absolutely right, they give incorrect information. I think it's around 1400. I think according to my software, they have no idea how many real active engage. It's almost like... Um, how do I put it? It's, it's just like um, I'm getting 70 marks, but I don't even know that I'm getting 70 marks. I think I'm getting 95. Right. And, well, and then let me simplify this even more, if I yeah. may. So let's take 200 new patients. So my practice says, Amy, we got 200 new patients last year. Well, if I got 200 new patients and all of those became participating in hygiene, again, an active patient in hygiene, Take the 200 and divide that by 24, and what do you get? You get 8.3. Right. So right there tells you that it's going to take me a minimum of 200 active patients to build another hygiene day to grow my business because 8.3 hours is basically a hygiene day, eight hours a day. So if all 200 of those patients become participating, then if I am retaining those patients and I'm not having patients go out the back door and losing a ton, then with all hopes in the next six month recare cycle, ideally we would say, wow, we grew 200 patients. So we might need to add another hygiene day into the future. So instead of having four days of hygiene a week, we now can have five days of hygiene a week, which means we would do double hygiene on one day to grow the practice because the patient growth has happened. Right. So instead of looking at the big number, just take those 200 new patients. So now you say, well, what's 200 new patients that become active? That's not just a limited new patient comes in not participating in hygiene. That is a patient that comes into hygiene that is someone that I'm retaining. So that is a minimum of 16 new patients a month and retaining all 16 of those so that next year you can add another hygiene day. So when that young kid said to me that was looking to buy a practice and have his friend come on board in the future, I said, in order for you to do that, and you have enough business for both of you, you're going to have to do a major marketing campaign to grow your business to where there is enough for both of you to be able to work in this business four days a week, both of you here. You're looking at a significant number of patients. Right, right. Let's go back to the 10,000 foot view. We were talking about patient base and you really explained very well how to use the active patient base number properly to grow your business just by focusing on the hygiene days and how to make those things happen. What is the next big metric in your mind or big bucket in your mind under you know, patient base uh, you know, quadrant of your, of your strategy? So within, within the quadrants and in, in that particular quadrant of patient base, I have to make sure that I have systems in place and I wouldn't say it's necessarily a metric 
but it, it comes down to how the systems drive the metrics. So when I go into a practice within the patient base category, I look at the systems that they have to be in communication with the patients. First being the recall system, which we just discussed. Second would be my treatment follow-up process. So if I came in as a patient, you told me I needed treatment and I didn't schedule today, then what is the process in following up with that patient? Because there's a ton of metrics that surround the, the treatment values. So I'm looking at my per patient value. I'm looking at treatment plan values. I looked at a practice recently where I did a remote login for a doctor that's not physically here in my city. And just as an overview, I wanted to understand what was happening in the business. And I saw that out of 300 plus patients that had a treatment plan value, over 150 of those were under $1,000. So what I said to this doctor was, there's one of two things happening here. Either you have completed all the treatment and we're in June for all of these patients and you don't have a lot of inventory, or you are not comfortable with explaining to a patient their comprehensive dentistry needs. And it was the second, which means now I need to be on a coaching call with this individual to help them with phrasing and help them with improving confidence when speaking to patients, because this individual has had a long-term relationship with these patients and my treatment plan values are under $1,000. Well, the way I look at it is the in into the practice, the immediate need, I-N, immediate need into the practice is where we focus first. Then we go into basic restorative. Then we go into comprehensive and complex. That's recare cycle one, recare cycle two, recare cycle three. If these patients have been patients of the practice for a long time and their acceptance ratio of treatment and their treatment plan values are that low, then we have a problem. And that problem stems from the provider more than it does the patient. So that's the second area of focus is now that I know my patient base and I know where they are in hygiene, now I go and look at where are they in treatment and then what are my treatment plan values and what's my retention of patients that schedule for treatment. The third area to give one, you one my- second. One yeah, second, let me just, um, so the treatment, so you talked about recall, that's like active patients and you know keeping them coming back with hygiene. Yes. And then you talked about treatment plans and uh, so, Again, dumb it down for me. Give me some examples and numbers. So um, give me an example of an actual yeah, client. So I, I have eight patients a day that come into hygiene. Right. And every day I want to know who has a treatment need and who's due to schedule for treatment and where are they in their phase treatment planning. So when we plan for a patient to come into the practice and we do our huddle, so, Doctor, I have Amy on the schedule today. It looks like we've got her down for that lower right. You know, I also see that she's got an area on the upper left and an area on the upper right. I'll make sure when I seat her today that I let her know what our plan is for her today and what the future is for her. So now I'm an assistant. I seat the patient. Amy, we've got you on the schedule for today for the lower right-hand side. As we prepared for your visit today, we also noted that there's an area on the upper left, and I'm sure that doctor will be talking to you about that when he comes in, she comes in, and that will be our next area of focus for you. So my assistant's already setting the stage to get case acceptance without the doctor having to be involved in that. And ideally, again, I would like to see the case acceptance in that 75 to 80% ratio 
And if they don't say yes to treatment, then what is the follow-up? If I can say to Amy and she says, oh, I'm not ready to start with treatment. She goes up to the front. The front says, you know, let's go ahead and get you scheduled. And she says, no, I don't know what my schedule's like. I don't know what my finances are. Then what is the process in reaching back out to that patient to find out, have you had an opportunity to talk to your significant other and figure out how this could work within your budget? And I have to obviously get permission for that. So there has to be a process in follow-up for those who do not say yes today, because when you look at population, not everyone is going to say yes today. Those analytical, real detailed personality styles are going to go home and research and do their homework and search the internet and do all of that stuff before they say yes to treatment. So trying to close them today is going to be very difficult. Your other personality styles, time-driven individuals, like, yeah, let's just get it done. Get me in and get me out of here. I'm already here. Get it done. You're going to have the other personality that might say, sure, let's do it. What is it? And then they realize how much it's cost and they're going, oh, wait, I don't know if I can do that today. So you have to know your patient base again and know how they, their behavior styles are to be clear on how to get case acceptance because there's a true art to case presentation and case acceptance. And if we don't do it properly, then we've got someone now on the phone trying to chase that treatment if the patient doesn't say yes today. So if we can present it, set the stage, get them from the need to the want in office, fantastic, that's great. But if we can't today, now we've got to go after that 25 to 30% that didn't say yes. And what is the process? What is the timeframes that we contact these patients? Do we use our dental software to do that? Do we do it by phone? Do we do it by letter? What is the process? So that's where when we don't have case acceptance, because now that's bodies into hygiene, taking care of no problem. Now I need to keep bodies in restorative. So I've got the flow happening and everything is going smoothly. If I don't get case acceptance, then I've got to work on that and I've got to have a plan. Does that make sense? Make makes ton of sense. Just want to clarify. I know with the other example, you, you told me, okay, most practices have 60%, right? Active patients. And then uh, you you go into the details, you figure out the demographics and everything, you come up with yes. action plans to boost it to 85. Here, what's the typical thing you see on an average practice in terms of eligible treatment versus actual treatment completed? Mm-hmm. The challenge that I have with that in lots of practices is that they put all the phased treatment planning in the dental software. So you have such a, a variety of treatment plan values often when they put it all in the system, whether it's phase one, two, three, four. So that that can skew my numbers initially. But what I also find that happens is they don't always take it out of the treatment plan when it's completed. So it's false inventory is what I call it because it's not truly treatment opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I have to teach them how to clean up their treatment plans when the patients come in. But the the range varies dramatically depending on demographics and patient base, as well as the provider, because I have some real conservative providers that don't treatment plan, as I mentioned that one. And then I have some that are really aggressive and they treatment plan these huge cases and I don't have good case acceptance. So there is not as as defined of a percentage that I see like I do in the hygiene at the 60%. Right. Right. It's much more variable, if I would say. 
Right. So the key here is doesn't matter where you start, but really figuring out wherever you are, where the opportunities are, so you can keep improving that you know part of your business. So you're getting more people accepting treatment, and therefore your revenue is growing from that piece of your business. Correct. Right. That that is my. So when I look at a dental practice, I really need to look at first of all hygiene. If it's a GP practice getting my patients into my hygiene chair and building that relationship. Everybody knows it's based on relationship. That's what gets us referrals. That's what gets us case acceptance because they trust us. They believe us. They like us. Then once I've got them into hygiene and they don't say yes to treatment, then I have to have the treatment follow-up process is what we just spoke about. The third area has to be on the money. And then it is now patient money and insurance money. So if I walk into a practice and I don't have those three systems in place up front, that is automatically where I go, which is bodies and hygiene, bodies and restorative, and money in my door. So if your front desk does not have systems for those three areas, you need to get on it sooner rather than later because there are things that are falling through the cracks. If you don't have solid follow-up processes in those three areas. Right. And I'm not just saying that you can use an outside software because I've gone into many practices in the, de- in the, in the hygiene department where the dental software has multiple recare types for that patient. And now that patient's getting, getting the entire recall follow-up process for both recall types. So if I have a Profi and I have a Perio in my name, and the system is sending me out reminders for my profi due date at set X intervals. And then they do the same thing for perio. Now I'm a patient that's going to be really upset because I'm getting all of these messages through that system that you use for right. both recall types. And I'm getting bombarded and you're making me unhappy and I'm not coming back because you won't leave me alone. You know, that's an excellent point you're making. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why Facebook succeeded and Yahoo failed. Facebook was so good at only showing you things you care about. You like to watch a particular musician, they'll show you more videos from that person, right? Um, But Yahoo, for example, in the old days, they showed display ads and a lot of it is garbage. Nothing to do with what you care about. And the problem is Yahoo might be thinking, oh, well, I'm making money. One out of 100 people will click on the ads. But what they're doing is they're annoying the other 99. And when you annoy 99 people, eventually those 99 people will tune you out. And uh, eventually that one person, in other words, for that one golden egg, you're killing the golden goose. You're killing the other 100, right? So I think it's so important that uh, practices realize who they are annoying because they're just a bit lazy. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking. Right. I see that a lot. So when I go in and implement a recall program, What I do is I first look at what happens externally if you're using an external service and what happens internally. And then we timeline those together to where if we need to bring some of that in-house, we can. If we don't need to, no problem, depending on the demographics of the patient base. But it needs to be timelined out as to what the intervals of frequency are in contact and what type of contact happens. So I have to first look there before I even go and say, oh, your hygiene department is, you know, this, this, and this. I've got to understand what's going on. And I've got to know the demographics of the patient base so that I know how to change that contact if I need to. 
So that is the same thing for treatment, but somewhat different because I have to make sure that my, it's garbage in, garbage out. If there's not good data, then it's wasting my time following up on it. So I have to teach people to clean up their database first and foremost so that we can put solid systems in place that are effective in the in the future because we're working with the right information. I have a relationship with a local CPA firm here and they ask me often to go in and just make sure that the database is clean and that we have good gar good information in so that good information is coming out because if it's garbage in, then it's garbage out and now their P&Ls are not right because it's not the right information. I went into a practice a couple of years ago where there was a suspicion that money was being taken from the practice. And that came from us not actually posting accurately the care credit transactions. We were putting the full fee in as a collection for care credit versus putting in what we actually collect and then doing the adjustment of the fee that we were charged. So this practice was doing a significant amount of care credit revenue, but they were putting the full fee in at the front desk and what was hitting the bank account was not the same that was showing on the end of the month reports. So when you have that dramatic of a difference, then yeah, you start going, what's happening? Where's my money? And it was because improper posting of the numbers and they had to clean up their database. So the CPA firm sent me in and said, something's going on here. Can you go look at this? And I said, yeah, this is what it is. So your team has to really, I know we're always busy. We're always busy. Everybody's busy. I'm busy. You're busy. We're always busy. But we have to take a step back and slow down and make sure that the foundation is in place before we start running. You gotta learn how to walk before you can run. And if the data is not accurate, then it's not gonna do us any good from a planning and a strategy standpoint because I'm dealing with garbage. Right. So, and that's where accounts receivables come in. You know, money in, money out. That's my third system under the patient-based category that has to be so refined. And with insurance taking over our industry, you have to really, I mean, I used to say I need a person up front that can handle the hygiene schedule. I need a person up front that can handle restorative. And then the two of them can share the responsibility of the financials, whether it be patient money or insurance money, and we split that up. What I have found with the level of insurance taking off in, in practices is you almost have to have a third person that that's all they do is get insurance breakdowns and follow up on insurance claims and you know doing that type of work because we're being driven by the insurance industry to keep our practices going if we need volume. Right. <clears throat> so that increases my overhead for front office, but it now means that I have to have solid systems in place for following up on my insurance outstanding and my patient balance outstanding. And what I'm running into a lot in these, in more in the due diligence is I am running into a significant amount of credit balances in offices. What that tells me is a couple of things. That tells me that we may not have our proper fee schedules in the system. Or that tells me that we are collecting from a patient and then our estimates were higher than what we expected. 
So I now have a credit on that patient's account. If I have to sell a practice for someone, if I'm on the buyer side and we're buying it, those accounts receivables of credits have to be satisfied by the seller. So either they're going to have to give concessions to the purchase price, or they're going to have to send the money back to the patients, or they're going to have to send the money back to the insurance. And the insurance company may come back to you three, four, five years down the line and say, we overpaid you. We want our money back. So those credits, you don't just look at the money owed to us. We now have to look at the money that we've owed to patients because we did our adjustments improperly. We didn't have our fee schedules in. We overcollected. You know, you're going to have some pre-collects. I get it. If patients are in phase treatment and you pre-collect and you do care credit and then you put it on their account, that's fine. But all these small little balances that start to add up and add up and add up, they're becoming more and more significant. And that tells me that there might be some issues in how we do our accounting and how we manage our accounts receivables and our postings. So, I mean, again, I could stand on a soapbox for so many different topics and it it's just things that I've experienced and I've seen over the years of getting into these offices and really digging into the data and not focusing so much on the language skills and you know the flow of the practice. When I'm getting into the business side of the practice, I am really looking in detailed all of this information and the doctors have never taken the time to understand this. Makes makes ton of sense. I definitely want to talk to you more, uh, just because you have so much knowledge. Uh, um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I, you know, I like to go slow, so and I know you know I'm kind of asking you a lot of detailed questions, but so maybe we can talk at a later point about perhaps for, you know doing a part two of this or you know something like that. Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely, I could talk forever because I'm so passionate about what I do, right. and I just. I look at things from a different perspective. There's a lot of consultants out there and we all have similar but different approaches. And I have stayed more focused in the data and the metrics and the information because I have the experience to be able to help change that story. Right. And by physically being in that office and working in the clinical setting, as well as working in the front desk, but also being trained as a professional to analyze this, I can bring all of that together for practice. And my goal is to not be in there long-term. I don't, I don't want to be in a practice long-term. If you need that kind of a consultant, that's not necessarily where my focus is. I come in, let's get the cleanup done. Let me get your strategy in place. And I can support you, you know, randomly, quarterly, whatever that may be. But I'm not the kind of consultant that's in there every week or every month holding your hand. I don't have the patience for that first and <laughs> foremost. <laughs> uh, but I, my, my capacity, I feel like I have so much to give so many different people that I want to be able. That's why I'm so thankful that you reached out to me to do a podcast, because I believe that the knowledge that I have. I can share with others and help them see things from a different perspective. I, I totally get it. And I just talking to you, I know you're so focused, you know, every word out of your mouth, there is a reason for it. You know, so <laughs> it's just, uh, and I think I understand that perspective you bring, which is, you know, let's cut all the nonsense. Let's focus on the important stuff and let's just yes. go to work and make it happen. Yes. I'm not a drama consultant. I don't have the patience for that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> 
I don't need the drama. You put your big girl panties on and get over it, or you're not going to be in this practice because we don't have time for that. This is not about your noise that you bring into the door when you come into your office every day. Leave it outside. Come in, service our patients. That's our goal here. And we are here to run a business. We are also here to service patients. And there are two different conversations that I have. I'm not heartless. But if you're asking me to help your drive your business, then we're going to be on task, on target, on on point when I'm there. Right. And then you you use you, you don't have to be there every day to make sure people are doing what they need to, so you can support on a monthly right. or quarterly basis. Teach you calls. where to look in your software to make sure that they're doing their calls, they're doing their work, and all of that. Right. Right. I, so I yes, love- I can talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're going to put all the links, but can you give us uh, how people can get a hold of you? So, you know, they can also hear, you know, is it email? Is it phone? Is it the website? It is best to get me either by phone, which is my 602-690-6031. If I'm in a client's office, you will get my voicemail, but we will make a time to have a phone conversation because I don't have an assistant. It's just me. So either contact me by phone or you can email me and that's amy at d4metrics.com. Amy at d, the number four, and then metrics, M-E-T-R-I-C-S dot com. And the website is d4metrics.com, correct? Yes. My website is still under construction, but you can find me through my website, which is d4metrics.com as well. But the best way is by phone or email. Just text Correct. you or call And you me. can text me. You can text a 602-690-6031 as well. Just tell me who you are and where you're located, and I will make a time to have a phone conversation with you. And this phone conversation, is it complimentary or how does yes, it work? Yes, I will do an initial phone conversation complimentary to get to know you, to understand who you are and answer questions if you may have questions. And then we can talk about what your needs may be and how I could help. Perfect. Perfect. So if somebody's looking for focused results, you know, not the babysitting type consultant, you are, yeah. you are a good person. They might want to. Exactly. I'm not a babysitter. (laughs) I have to be sometimes, but I actually end up being more in relationship with the doctors than I am with the team members because I'm looking at the real critical data that is imperative about your business. And I'm giving coaching advice and, you know, strategy and training advice. And I can come into offices. I do. I go in and I do team meetings and I'll go in and I'll I'll deal with team challenges, but that's not my primary focus. My primary focus is staying in the quadrants of facility, team, patient base, and schedule, because when I can get all the systems in place and all the foundation in place, then we can design the type of schedule that we want. You can take this concept into any industry. You could take it to Starbucks. They have to have a place. They have to have customers. They have to have people to service the customers. And then they have to have a schedule of when they're going to work. Right. So the concept is 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 not something new. It's just how do you focus on main focus areas of the business and then break those down. Right. Yeah, I think maybe in one of the other episodes we could talk about the other quadrants, team, facility and schedule. Uh, yes, 
we could definitely talk about team um, and we can talk about schedule. The team is going to go more into do I have the right people in the right roles, personality styles, communication styles, associate integration with your team. And then within the schedule, we're looking at days worked, hours worked, provider schedules, value of time. We're looking at um, how we do our ideal day scheduling. So there's, again, there's there's components within each one of these categories that I kind of look at it as my my roadmap to where we're going to go. And there may be something that we're working on in the facility category and in the patient-based category at the same time. How do we use a consult room or how do we do the handoff from the back to the front? The, you know, there's just different areas of focus. So I could spend a, a whole podcast on each quadrant. <laughs> Absolutely. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Amy. This was Thank uh, you so much for having me. I, I hope that I've provided some information for your listeners to at least spark an interest in their own business and things that they feel that they might need to understand more about their own business. That's absolutely. what my goal is in providing information is to say, even if it's that one thing that you, just like you would talk with a patient, what's their immediate need when they came into your practice? What's your immediate need for your own practice? Where is your initial immediate concern for your business right now? Is that in your hygiene department? Is that in your schedule? Is that in you know your people? What is it? And really take a moment to ask yourself that question. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that drives revenue. It could be something that is is change management or a course correction in and how you do something. Right, right. No, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's about priorities, right? right? I mean, what's number one? What's number two? So really zooming in on the most important place you should focus on to have the biggest impact. And then what's next? The four, the four words that I, I, I use in a lot of my marketing and campaign information is increase, reduce, improve, and create. So if you want to increase your productivity, if you want to reduce your overheads, if you want to improve your systems and your processes, then we can do all of that to create the ideal practice that you have in mind. Right. So just as I have my four quadrants, I have my four words of increase, reduce, improve, and create. Yeah, you, you are a minimalist, so awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Amy. I really appreciate talking to you today. And once again, everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Growing Dentist Podcast Show. And today you are listening to Amy of d4metrics.com. Thank you.